As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is Conversations with People Promoting Mental Health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. This episode of Unquirking a Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's new comedic mystery, Motel California, available as a paperback or ebook wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today... I'm excited to share with you my interview with internationally renowned best-selling author Tess Gerritsen. We had a great conversation about her path to becoming a successful writer, the importance of always remaining curious as an author, and how she and her husband became persons of interest in the Golden State Killer case. And trust me, you don't want to miss that story. Before we get to my conversation with Tess, though, I want to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on something that was mentioned during our conversation, and that's the fact that... On the whole, writers are wired just a little bit differently than most other people. And I'm sure my wife would definitely agree with that statement. You know, our minds are continuously processing whatever it is we're taking in, and we're constantly imagining what-if scenarios. Just to bring that to life for you a little bit, I want to share with you an experience I had a few years ago. So it was the summertime, and I was finishing up my third novel, which was Winning Streak. And I was just making the last of the revisions that were suggested to me by my editor. Um, and I should point out that her name is Claudia Volkman. She's very talented. Love Claudia. Um, but I was in Chatham, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. I was staying in the home of, uh, Robert Bartlett, whose home we've been renting on the Cape in Chatham for over 20 years. And he just might possibly be my biggest fan of Massachusetts. And anyway, I was finishing up, you know, the last of those edits. And I promised myself that morning I would take a chunk of time off before writing again because in addition to writing books, I also run you know, my own market research business. I travel around the country and, and I do focus groups and things like that. So my free time is really, really limited um, you know, between work and traveling and, and all the stuff I have to do for my clients and, of course, everything I do for my family. 
So uh, I don't have a lot of free time, and writing, of course, takes up a large portion of it. There, there's no way to to write, you know, a seventy or eighty thousand word novel, which is kind of the length of the novels I tend to write, without spending a lot of time, you know, writing it, rereading it, proofreading it, working with an editor, blah blah blah. It's just a lot of time. You get the idea. Anyway, so uh, I make that promise to myself and to my family that I'm not going to start another book again and uh, send off the last of, of um, uh, winning streak um, back to my editor for, for one final pass. And I, I decide that morning I would go to church. Um, I'm a Catholic. I uh, go to church most Sundays. Not every Sunday, but most Sundays. Hope uh, you're not listening, Mom. Um, and I'm sitting in this church, and I mentioned before how how writers are wired just a little bit differently. So I can, I can almost guarantee that nobody else, you know, at Our Lady of Grace Chapel in Chatham, Massachusetts, that Sunday morning was looking at the octogenarian priest on the altar and daydreaming a what-if scenario. And the what-if scenario that popped into my head that Sunday morning was what if after drinking the communion wine, the priest dropped dead. I know. I, I'm telling you, nobody else in that congregation that morning had that thought. It was just me. But it came to me. It came to me during that Mass, right after I promised myself that I wouldn't start another book. What do I do? I go back to the house. I take out a legal pad. And I don't start writing. I start outlining. I mean, outlining isn't writing, right? I mean, I'm still keeping my promise to myself. But no, I outline the story that eventually, eventually, you know, half a year later or so, became the last homily. And uh, I have to say, I mean, I'll toot my own horn. It's actually a pretty good book. Uh, It takes place in Chatham, Massachusetts, and uh, it's a thriller kind of book, a little whodunit. But um, yeah, how's that for uh, shameless self-promotion? But there's there's a bigger point to this entire story. And, you know, that is that is as follows. If you have an author in your life, you know, if you're married to one, if you're dating one, if you're if you're in some kind of domestic partnership uh, with an author, um, you know this, you know that our wheels are always turning and we have to constantly be open to those moments when inspiration hits, because when it does and it's a story idea that we just can't let go of, we know that our only option is to start writing. Um, and until we get it out of our system, onto a page, and hopefully, hopefully, out to the world. Um, but rest assured, we know this about ourselves. We are self-aware. We know that we're a little nutty. And uh, we appreciate your patience. We appreciate the patience you have for us. So thank you so much for indulging me in that, uh, in that little, um, I guess it's more than uh, an aside, um, in that little uh, diversion, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. I write things. Uh, talking into microphone sometimes makes me nervous. Um, but thank you for that. Uh, but now, uh, on to my fascinating conversation with best-selling author Tess Gerritsen. Um, so I, why don't we start then from, from the beginning? I mean, when, when did you first realize that you had, um, a, a gift for writing or a knack for writing? 
I knew I had a desire for writing at about age seven. Uh, yeah, it's like a lot of writers. I, I, I was a big reader as a child, and um, after a while I thought, why can't I tell my own stories? I have lots of stories I want to tell, just like, you know, these Nancy Drew tales I was reading a lot of. Yeah, I was going to ask, well, what did you like to, when you were seven, what, what were you reading back then? Um, I was already starting into Nancy Drew about then, and, uh, you know, I think a whole generation of female mystery writers were uh, inspired by that character, because she was, she was um, young, she was a detective, she had everything that we wanted, like a boyfriend in a car. <laughs> 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 I thought, why not? So, um she she was uh, a role model for the liberated woman, and um, I think that that inspired me to think of women as crime fighters, as as police officers, as as people who can solve mysteries. And was that like countercultural at the time to to where kind of kind of women were how they were portrayed more more in popular culture back back you know way back then? It was ahead of its time because I remember telling when I went to high school, which is not that you know much long much. Um, Longer after being introduced to Nancy, I told my guidance counselor I wanted to be an FBI agent. And she looked at me and she said, they don't take women. And it was true. Back then, they did not take women. Um, so that was, yeah, kind of a, a come down. I thought, gee, I, I imagined myself as a liberated woman, but clearly society wasn't ready for us yet. <laughs> and then, um, so you, you knew that, I mean, you were, you were interested, you, you were of course a reader, you had this, you know, thought in your head, um, of, of, you know, writing kind of Nancy Drew type things. And you know, of course you had an interest in, in, in the FBI. Um, what, what drew you, what, what eventually drew you to, um, a career in medicine. Um, so I wanted to be a writer, as I said, and I told my father I was I was going to go to journalism school. My dad said that's no way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, coming from uh, an Asian American family, um, and they're very conservative when it comes to what kinds of occupations they think are appropriate for their children. Uh, they wanted me to go into sciences. And I had already enjoyed science at the time, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go to medical school as, as my dad wanted me to do. Uh, to do. So that, that's really how I, <laughs> I veered into medicine is because I was, I was a good Asian-American child. Yeah, right. You were kind of doing, doing kind of what was expected of you. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's, um, I, know, I know of a lot of Asian-Americans who look back and they think, why did I become an engineer? Why did I go into sciences when I really wanted to be a fashion designer? And I think... <laughs> that is a that's really a thing for second ge- second generation kids is they they feel that they must above all be secure economically secure right right and then uh, you know but the medical you know medical school i mean i i, I know this a little bit well i don't know it firsthand i mean i have a lot of friends who are doctors but it's not it's not an easy path certainly i mean that's probably an understatement um but I mean, did did you did you feel fulfilled when when you were working as um, when you were working as a doctor as a physician? You know, it is it's a very fulfilling field. But for me, as a young mother uh, with two kids, it was um, so stress inducing. I think the real problem is that I um, we had two doctors in the family it was me and my husband, and we had two toddlers, um, and. There were not, there, it was not unusual for both of us to be called into the hospital in the middle of the night. And what do you do with your sleeping kids? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had a couple of these crises where I would take one kid and he would take the other kid into, into the hospital late at night. And it was, it was after a while, I just, we just said, we can't, we can't do this. We can't both be full-time doctors um, and, and not have child care, not have full-time child care. 
So I volunteered to stay home. <laughs> was that, I mean, just going back to, to you know, you, you talking before we started off, you know, you were talking about being a liberated woman. Was that tough for you to make that decision to, to be the one or volunteer to stay home or, or not? No, because I, I really, I still wanted to be a writer. That was, I always thought, you know, eventually, maybe when I retire someday, I'll, I'll write a book. But then here was, here was this chance. Um, I could stay home with the kids uh, and also pursue my writing career. And that, it all worked out. That was really, I mean, I was lucky that my, my husband was willing to, you know, to let me stay home yeah. for a while because economically it was a hit. Wait, was there a um, was there a time where you were juggling both? You know, you know, being a writer and you know also being a practicing physician, or did you just start writing after you um, you started staying home? Um, I started writing on maternity leave for my first child, um, so I had I had about six weeks to write something, <laughs> and then I went back to work. Uh, and then um, gradually, I went down to three quarters time, and um, so I was I was I was juggling motherhood, uh, being a doctor, and also being a writer all at the same time. So that um, so then you know, of course you get the the opportunity to to stay home. Um, it, 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 out of your curiosity, though, in those six weeks, did you did you ever publish what you wrote in those six weeks on maternity leave? Yeah, I wrote a short story that ended up winning first place in a statewide um, magazine contest. So that was a good six weeks off. <laughs> <laughs> so that had that had to feel good, though, right? I mean, you're you're you know you're you're scratching that itch of of wanting to to be a writer and you know having the opportunity to to, to write. Although I have to imagine, I mean, we have um, our situation is a little different. We have uh, triplets. Um, mm. So I know that. Oh, how do you get any sleep? Well, <laughs> well they're sixteen now, so oh, okay. they actually sleep a lot more than we do. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but even being a stay at home mother, there's not all the free time that, that most people think it is. No, it's, it, it's not. But I, I had one big advantage. Both my sons slept a lot as babies. They, I would put them down and they would take a good two hour nap and you can do a lot in two hours. It's amazing how much you can do in two hours when you know that, that you, you know, you only have two hours. Yeah. Just uh, out of curiosity, is there anything you miss about practicing medicine? Yeah, I miss I miss um, talking to patients. I, I miss hearing their stories and 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 the thing about medicine, which is so enriching um, as an experience, is that you are really meeting people from across all walks of life, all economic, um, you know, um, strata. So. Uh, as a doctor, I was working with people who lived under bridges, and I was also working with bankers. And um, you know, it, you, they all have wonderful stories to tell. And and do those stories, you know, ever wind up in in your writing at all? Um, I, you know, there are sort of aspects of their stories, um, maybe little experiences, little anecdotes they tell me, but but um, nothing directly from medicine. What I what I took directly from medicine were. I think aspects of science that fascinated me. For instance, you know, when I was um, working in Hawaii, we had a number of patients with leprosy, and that end- ended up working. That ended up working into one of my stories. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I I find when I started um, writing, it was you know I have this career as a as a marketing consultant, so I'm one of these guys that that goes all over the country and runs focus groups on various topics. Um, but I, I, at, at some point in time, I start, you know, my mind, just to keep it fresh and interesting for me, my mind starts to wander when I'm running a discussion, which my clients probably don't want to hear. 
But <laughs> but I start thinking of of the people who I'm interviewing as characters, and then sometimes they say something or have an experience because you know this this aspect of my job is is somewhat anthropological. I've got to I've got to do a lot of travel. I have to be where these people are, and I start I start coming out of the moment, and and I start like constructing like these stories, or I get inspired by something in my head, and. And I'm wondering, like, are, are, are authors or people who have a tendency to to be interested in writing, are we wired like a little bit differently than than the average person? I think we daydream a lot. <laughs> I think that it's very it's very often. I think what you're feeling is is completely universal among writers. Is you may be doing something and all of a sudden it's like it lights a fire in your head. You think, oh, oh, that's a story. Um, so. It, Everything becomes, I think, much more interesting for a writer because you're not just doing something. You're doing something and also fertilizing your mind. Yeah. Um, and even the most mundane of things may suddenly have a, force an idea into your head. Um, I mean, I just remember we, uh, weeding the garden for me is like really great creative time. <laughs> and I just remember weeding the garden with my son, and we, uh, suddenly I popped my head up and I said, oh, let's make a horror film. I have an idea about a horror film. So, yeah, these things are, um, that's the great thing about being a writer is you never get bored. I was in, um, I was, we vacationed in, uh, in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago, I was in, in town. It was Sunday. I decided to, to visit the local uh, Catholic church and I'm uh, I'm in there and I see this old priest like <laughs> he he starts saying the mass and you know I know that everybody else in the congregation is probably thinking oh wow um, we're here in this holy place and we're we're celebrating this this mass I'm thinking God what what happens if this guy drops dead on the altar and then we find out that he was murdered by a parishioner like that's yeah. that's that's what that consumed me for the entire hour and then I went <laughs> went back to the house we were renting and I wrote an outline for a story with that scenario that eventually became a book. Um well you see that I mean that's that's what happens. We're just we just have these weird minds. I don't know. It's it's yeah. it's it's I don't know, but I'm glad I'm glad you you have like a similar um a similar point of view on that. I mean Certainly, writing a horror story with your with your uh, son while weeding the garden is uh, kind of up that alley as well. Right, and and you know, I mean, I just and sometimes you can be in the oddest places, and you suddenly um, um, something you see or something you hear um, really starts off a book. I mean, I was in Italy on vacation. We were looking at a lot of sacred art because that's what they have in their museums and their churches, and. Um, was seeing the same saints over and over again with the same iconography. And I suddenly thought, what if a killer did this, you know? Mm. Used a murder scene the way a painter would and, and would leave icons that would tell a story, that would have a message for somebody. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can be bored in an art museum and come up with an idea. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Uh, that's um, I, 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 I empathize with that. And it, <laughs> it also gets to the point where... I I sometimes, you know, I, I, I have like somewhat of a photographic memory. So I wind up like if somebody told me something five years ago and it's like it sometimes it just sits in my mind and I, I let it stew yeah. a bit, then it'll wind up, you know, somehow in in a story. Not, you know, not not exactly how they told me or the experience they shared, but some version of it so that, you know, I'm not giving too much away of a, of a personal situation. But it gets... <laughs> It gets to the point where, like, friends tell me, they're like, we can't tell you anything anymore because we don't know if it's going to wind up in a book. <laughs> I don't want to end up in your book. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
Well, that's, you know, and that's the other thing I think that writers do is that we pick up things and we don't know what to do with them. It's like picking up, uh, you know, pieces of glass and you don't realize you're going to make a mosaic with it eventually. Um, but there it is sitting in a box in your, in your garage and you just hold on to those things just the way we hold on to facts or we hold on to impressions. And it may take 10 years, but it will eventually find its way into a book. When, when you um, first started writing full-time, I know you're, you're, you're very well-known for kind of the, the medical uh, mystery and thriller. Did you, was, was that the genre you started writing in right when you started you know, writing full-time? Or did, did you try your hat in a couple of different areas? Well, I've, I've kind of been all over the genre map. I started off writing romantic suspense, um, mainly because that's what I was reading at the time. Uh, and I love romantic suspense. I love that 50-50 balance between um, you know, a love story and history. So um, I, yeah, I, my first nine books were romantic suspense novels, and then I ended up going to medical thrillers, and then I went to crime novels, and I've done science fiction and historical. So it really, um, it's really what story you're dying to tell at mm -hmm. that moment, um, and I don't really pay much attention to genre. Yeah, and the reason I ask is, you know, I imagine with your first nine books being in romantic suspense, you have you certainly have a following by that point in time. When you when you switch the genre on your readers, did you was there anything you did to to kind of handle a potential backlash from them, or anything you did to make the transition a little bit easier for you and and even your readers? Um, going from romance to thrillers, I don't think was, you'd, I, I felt much back backlash. I think what you're going to feel backlash in is going from thrillers to romance. Yeah. <laughs> um, romance, romance readers, you know, bless them, are, um, are, are quite, you know, they're omnivorous. They read a lot, and they're willing to cross genres, and, and they don't turn up their noses at genres. Uh, they're, they're kind of just big, huge readers. Um, thriller and mystery readers tend to be... Um, how can I say it, much more prejudiced mm. against certain genres. They don't like fantasy. They don't like, they don't like um, romance. And if you let that creep into a thriller novel, um, you will get some, you know, some, some bad letters about that. So um, I didn't feel that. I think what I felt mostly, though, was when I went from, from romance to thrillers, that um, there was a lot of sniffing. Uh, I still remember when my deal was announced, because it was a fairly large deal for Harvest, the New York Times had one paragraph and just called me, uh, a, you know, a romance author. They didn't say this is a great thriller novel. They said, "Yeah, former Harlequin author lands big book deal." Um, and it was almost said in a snide manner. So I do think that there there is prejudice going um, in one direction, but not necessarily the other. Mm. Now you, you mentioned Harvest. My my grandfather on my mother's side um, was a, a physician in World War II. Um, and, you know, he came back from the war and he set up a private practice in, in Larchmont, New York. And then, you know, he eventually obviously retired and, and, you know, we lived in South Florida. I grew up in South Florida and, and they, they bought a place in Pompano Beach and I would go to his house. Um, and in his study, he had all these books by this author, Robin Cook. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, I was a kid, so I wasn't really reading a whole bunch of anything, but I, I, I would look at these book covers and of course it was like the late seventies. So I was I would look at these book covers and the one just like stuck out to me which was uh, Coma, um, mm -hmm. like total seventies kind of book cover and then he had another one brained so I started it was a summer and I started reading these books and I got hooked on the medical drama or the medical thriller yeah. rather um, and so and Harvest uh, you just mentioned it but that was your first medical thriller and that that landed you on the New York Times bestseller list 
Um, and I'm curious how you how you came up with the idea for that book. Well, like a lot of things, it um, it it came from. It was just this moment where um, I felt an emotional reaction to something I had heard, and I I really feel the best books elicit a very strong emotional reaction in the writer. So I was having dinner with a um, <clears throat> group of people, and one of them happened to be a retired homicide cop, and he'd been traveling in Russia. And while he was in Moscow, um, the Russian cops told him that children were disappearing. And they were, they were convinced these kids were being kidnapped off the streets and sent off to the Middle East as, as organ donors. Um, you know, killed, sacrificed their, their hearts and lungs and, and kidneys removed for rich people. Now, um, at the time, my sons were both about old enough to become organ donors. Mm. And, and, you know, you're a parent. You, you just, this whole idea is just horrifying to you that your child would, be, would, would vanish and would end up in, in, as a body part. Um, so I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that, at that point, I was still writing romance novels. Um, and this was clearly not going to be a romance novel. This idea was so shocking and gruesome. Um, and after a couple of weeks, after not being able to stop thinking about it, I realized this was my next book. And that's how I made the transition. It was just this idea came, and it wouldn't let me go. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the odd thing about it was that I remember <clears throat> telling my agent at the time, who, who did not know I was a doctor, you know, I, I felt that having people know I was a doctor, that was irrelevant to what I was doing as a writer. I told her this great idea about uh, a black market and harvested organs. And she said, um, that's a great idea, but you can't, you can't sell it unless you're a doctor. And I said, I, there's something I haven't told you. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, that's, that's how Harvest was born. It was just a conversation at dinner. And, but but the, the thing you said there was that uh, it was an idea that, that you just couldn't let go of. Like it, it almost grabbed you. Right. Right, and I think the biggest books that I have written, um, the books that have had the most uh, impact for the audience anyway, are also the ones that have ideas that have the biggest impact on me. And are are they easier to write for you than than books where you know that that haven't you know ideas that haven't grabbed you the same way? Yeah, they are easier. Uh, I think once that idea has grabbed you, you're you're halfway there already um, because you have that. That engine, that en- that steam engine, that will will you pull you through to the end just because it is an idea that you just feel in every every bone in your body. Right. It's it's almost like you're you're. I mean, I hate to to sound so um, uh, willy nilly, but you you almost become one with the story, and then it just starts. You know, for me, like that happens when I'm really into an idea, and I, I just start writing, and I can't I can't stop, and I lose track of time. To the point where my wife is like, "Where are you?" <laughs> and oh, yeah, it's really tough. Why aren't you coming down for dinner? <laughs> yeah, um, writing. Yeah, I, just a, just a, here's a shout out to every husband or wife of a writer. Um, you put up with a lot, people, and thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm I'm always curious when um, when I get to talk to an author whose work has been adapted for for the screen, you know, either big screen or small screen. But um, and I know you you've had a few, but uh, you know, of course, one of the most more popular ones is the Rizzoli and Isle series. What what was that like when you heard um, you know there was interest in turning that into into something for the screen? Um, I guess my reaction is dubiousness. I guess um, I have uh, I have sold the rights to a number of my books, and nothing ever happens. It just 
you know, they, 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 they write you a check, you cash the check, and that's the last you ever hear or see of the whole thing. So um, when the producer called me and said he, he thought that Rizzoli and I would make a great TV show, <clears throat> I said, sure, right. Uh, and his check cleared, which is all he cared about. <laughs> uh, and then I forgot it. I forgot about it. I walked away. And a year later, I was kind of surprised when he called me again. He said, um, we have a really good pilot uh, episode script, and um, we're going to try and, and cast it and see what, go- what happens. So, again, you know, I'm, I'm very dubious. I'm thinking nothing will ever happen. Um, and this is why I never get excited when Hollywood calls. I just don't. Uh, and so I was surprised when it, when it actually went, um, you know, with the pilot was shot, and I was surprised when it was picked up for a series, and I was surprised when it kept getting picked up for seven seasons. Um, so I think the best, the best uh, frame of mind that a writer should have when Hollywood comes calling is, thank you, I'll make sure the check clears, and I'll, you know, let me know if anything happens, and then forget about it. Just write your next book. Were, were you involved in the production of that show at all and writing the teleplays or as a consultant or anything like that? No, you know, and they were very kind. They asked me if I would um, join them at the, in the Paramount Writers' Room and, and, um, and work on the scripts, but I have too many book deadlines. I, I'm a novelist, not a screenwriter, so I, I just said, no, thank you very much. Um, now, there was, um, there was uh, one episode that was based on one of my short stories but no I never worked on any of the scripts okay and and did you ever you know th- these are your babies I mean I would think that um, <laughs> these characters are y- your creation <laughs> did you ever um, y- disagree with any of the creative directions or choices that either the writers or the actors took with with those you know children of yours well yeah they, they did change they did change my kids quite a bit um, Rizzoli pretty much stayed the same they they changed more aisles a bit, made her not as gloomy and complex as she is in the books. Um, but I understand that television is a different medium, and uh, you know, I was willing to, to release it and let the writers take it in the directions they wanted to. Um, now, some people will go back and forth and say they don't seem like the same characters at all, but that's what happens when your, your book is adapted. They make changes, and, and they alter characters. So, um, you know, I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> I think I'm familiar enough with the film industry to understand why these ha- things happen. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but I, I do know that um, uh, in the final season of the show, didn't did you make an appearance as a writer who helps um, <laughs> Isles establish herself in the literary field? And I'm curious as to how that how that came to be, and and you know, was that your decision? Was that the you know the, the showrunner's decision to do that, or? The showrunners, uh, they knew it was the last season, and they thought, hey, do you want to you wanna, you know, do a cameo? And they had this really, it was their ingenious idea that I would play myself. I would play Tess Gerritsen at a mystery conference. And um, there I would be introduced to Jane Rizzoli and Maura Isles, because Maura is interested in writing mystery. So it, it was a sort of a, a, a surreal thing where there I am being introduced to my characters who are now alive and real people. Um, <laughs> And it was it was a lot of fun. But as a result of that, I've been playing with the whole idea that oh, Maura Isles, maybe she does leave the Emmy's office. Maybe she does become a mystery writer. Um, and so the idea of maybe maybe this is something else I could do is write a series of novels under the pen name Maura Isles. Who knows what'll happen? It's just um, it's like this this hall of crazy hall of mirrors. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a really interesting idea actually. 
Um, <laughs> what, uh, you know, do, do you find that you, um, did you like, you know, acting? I mean, did you, did you get, ever get tempted to, you know, were you bit by the acting bug during, uh, during the production of that episode? Not really. You know, acting is hard work. <laughs> I found. Um, so uh, my, I think my appearance was what maybe two minutes long. It took all day. Yeah. Because the same the same scene is shot again and again and again from various camera angles and um, you know focusing on different faces and um, and then wearing high heels was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, no what I, I, I think that I, I admire actors. I, I really do. I think it's um, it's a difficult thing they do. Um, it looks like it's it's fun. You walk on set and you read your lines and you become famous, but it's it's way more than that. I mean, my, my son and I did make a horror film, and in the process of that, I understood that right that acting is a really specific skill that only a few people can do. Now, wait, was was the horror film based on the idea you had while you were weeding in the garden? <clears throat> Yeah, well, it was uh, it was one of the ideas that um, that my son and I ended up generating, and this was the one that we we decided to shoot. Um, but it was an introduction into what is it like to be a producer, what is it like to be a director and a screenwriter, and we learned an awful lot. We had a great time, and it's it's coming out on VOD in two weeks now. So. What's what's the name of that film? Island Zero. Ivan Zero. Uh, Island. Island. Island Zero. Island, as in... Island Zero. Yeah, you can uh, look it up on, I, on IMDb. And um, so it comes out on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and um, pretty much all the, um, all the cable networks. The, um, have, do you feel as if... Uh, this could be an unfair question. But do you feel as if you've accomplished everything you've wanted to accomplish as an author? I know. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's probably the Not right answer. That's probably the right answer. You know, if you feel like you've accomplished everything you want to as a writer, then you should just put down your pen and walk off into the sunset and have a great time with the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have to stay hungry, right? I mean, you have to, to maybe, maybe, maybe hungry isn't the right word, but maybe curious is a better word. Stay curious. That is, I think that's, that's my motto, is stay curious. Um, and if you stay curious... You're going to keep getting story ideas. They're not going to leave you alone. That's the thing. These these voices are not going to stop. Um, you know, I I had my my husband was asking me, when are you going to slow down? When can we like really kind of feel like retirees? And I promised him that I was going to slow down. And I and if anything, if the pace has gotten crazier, <laughs> um, here I thought I was I was going to you know set aside Rizzoli and Isles, and the next thing you know, I'm writing a ghost story, and I'm producing movies, and I'm, I'm working on some scripts now, and it's just that storytelling nowadays is taking all kinds of different forms. Um, it's not just books anymore. Now you can do film. Um, you, can, you can write scripts. You can produce. You can, um, <clears throat> you can do all kinds of uh, different types of stories and follow different interests. Um, one thing my, my son and I, my son is actually working as my director and DP, um, we're doing a, a documentary now, uh, shooting a, a documentary about the history of humans and pigs and, and why, why do Jews not eat pork. That turned out to be a really interesting uh, mystery for me that I wanted to follow. And it's, it has archaeology and biology and zooarchaeology, all kinds of things that are coming into the story. Well, that's, you know, that's a, you know, an interesting you know, thing is wh- whenever 
and, and I'm sorry to bring myself into this, but I, I just have. No, I love this. I love. I love hearing because I mean, the, the way you talk about yourself being something. I mean, the way you travel, and you're almost like an anthropologist trying to understand other, other cultures in your interviews. That's exactly what writers do. So yeah, keep talking. Well, <laughs> but it's like every time I I finish something, like I finish a manuscript and and I, I put it aside, and I, I I always wait a little while till I reread it, but. Um, I always tell myself, I, I'm not going to do this again for a while. I'm not going mm-hmm. to start, you know, and I never give it a deadline, but I always say, look, it's the same thing that happened after we lost a dog a few years ago. I said, I am never getting another dog. And within two weeks, there's another four-legged animal in the house. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I always say, I'm, ne- I'm not going to start doing this again because I know how much time goes into it and I'm juggling multiple things. I mean, I, I still, you know, have my, my own business that I run and then I write and, and do that. But I, then, but then an idea comes and I can't let it go. So then I start writing again, and then it's it's the same conversation that or the same questions. You know, kids, have you seen Dad? Where's Dad? <laughs> you know, and it's <laughs> it it just but it just it just happens. And but I, I do find that you have to be open to letting that happen. Like you can't you know even though I say I'm not going to do it again, I, I have to kind of keep an open mind about, you know, what I'm experiencing and, and because that does eventually lead to some kind of seed of an idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? You and I are storytelling junkies. We can't, <laughs> we can't set aside the habit. Um, and I, I just feel as if it keeps us alive and keeps us curious, and, and it makes life continually interesting if you're always looking for the story. Right, and there, there is something to that. I mean, there, there's almost like, you know, and sometimes the stuff that I write can be pretty dark, you know, and, and I'm sure you too, because there's, there's, you know, one, one series I write really involves, I mean, it's, it started off with uncorking a murder. I mean, there's some bad stuff that happens. So there's, there is like this negative stuff that you've got to dive into, but I do find that other writers who I talk to are some of the most optimistic people because they let their curiosity, they let themselves follow their curiosity and, and almost wonder and almost let themselves live in this world of imagination a little bit. Yeah, and I think because we explore the dark side, maybe we get out, maybe we, we express our fears. Um, and we explore all the ways that we would get out of a certain situation, and, and it helps keep us calm, you know, as real people. And it, it's possible to scare yourself by just reading all this research on serial killers and crime and ways to kill people. Um, but I think most writers I know of are pretty sunny people, you know? If we're, it, not, we're not gloomy. We, we go through life pretty, uh, pretty cheerful. <laughs> I'm scared to death that an FBI agent is going to look into my browsing history on my mm. computer and, and look up everything that I've been researching, <laughs> like how to kill somebody with pills, how to do this, how to do that. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm like, I've got to. I've I got have a- an anecdote. <laughs> I have an anecdote about that. So I wrote this book called The Apprentice um, about a, um, a killer who targets uh, couples. And um, he, he ties up the husband and puts uh, chinaware on his plate, on, on his knees, and then he assaults the wife. And the chinaware acts as, a, um, as, a, as an early warning signal if the guy gets up. So I wrote this book, and, and um, then a couple of, I guess a couple of years ago, I got this call from a, a cold case detective out in uh, Sacramento. And she said, um, we read your book, and we're convinced that you know who our killer is. This is somebody we've been looking for for 20 years who does exactly what your killer does. And 
things that you wrote are things that have never been revealed to the public. Um, and she, they had actually looked at my husband. They had thought maybe my husband was the killer because we lived in California during some of that time. Um, and I just had to explain to her, no, no, I just, I, I entirely made this up. This is all out of my imagination. And she was a little dubious. She thought I must have talked to this killer somehow and gotten these stories. Um, anyway, that was that was the call, and then it turned out to be the Golden State Killer that just got arrested. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that yeah. is amazing. And only when I'm reading the Golden State stuff now do I realize, oh my gosh, he did do something my killer did that I made up, and it, it was it was taking jewelry, items of jewelry, and and leaving them elsewhere. So it's not only the gold, you know, the Golden State Killer who was who was t- attacking couples, tying up the husband using, uh, I think, flat. Uh, Plates. He was using dinner plates. I happen to use a teacup. Um, and stealing jewelry. So there's all these things that were really kind of creepy, but purely coincidental. So, yes, they, they will come knocking if you get too close to the truth. <laughs> well, the teacup is much more sophisticated. I think a teacup is creepier because it's very dainty. You know, the teacup on the saucer just seems stranger. Very, dainty is a word my, my father's mother used to use all the time. <laughs> it's a word that's not used enough in uh, in today's day and age. Well, I don't know if it tells if it tells you that I, I read too I used to read too much Agatha Christie or that I'm actually getting old. But <laughs> <laughs> if um, you know, just just as we wrap up here, if if you could think um, about yourself when you were younger, you know, when you were um, reading those Nancy Drew books for the first time, and and being told by, you know, the guidance counselor that, you know, the, that um, the FBI doesn't hire women. If, yeah. if you could think about yourself back then and, and, and if, if you had the opportunity to write a letter to, to that, you, you know, younger Tess Gerritsen, um, what would you tell her? What would you put in that letter, like today, like you yourself today, like what would you put in that letter to kind of reassure, you know, younger Tess, um, that um, things are, are going to are actually going to be better than than what kind of culture was painting for for her at the time. You know, I don't think I would. I don't think I would write myself a letter. Interesting. I think that everything that everything I've achieved and everything that I am now comes from struggling. It comes from taking these left these wrong turns or going into blind alleys or going into medicine instead of writing. I I just couldn't be the writer I am today if I hadn't done both good things and bad things. Um, so uh, you're just looking back. I I don't think I would change a thing, um, really. <laughs> it was just, I guess it is, um, is kind of, a, again, a very optimistic thing to say. It was um, I made mistakes, but they all taught me something that went into my books. Interesting, yeah. That's, um, that's the... Uh... Yeah, you want to prevent like a butterfly butterfly effect or something from happening. If you <laughs> exactly, yeah, you just never know. One one pair of wings flapping is gonna is gonna just completely set off a whole chain of events. Well, there you go. Is there? Um, I know you uh, you've got Island Zero coming out. You mentioned on video demand in a couple of weeks. Uh-huh, uh huh. May fifteenth. May fifteenth. So be on the lookout for Island Zero video on demand uh, and streaming on May fifteenth. And is there anything else you're working on now that you want to talk about? Um, well, I'm finishing up another novel that is completely different from anything I've written, and I'm a little 
I'm wondering if my fans will think it's weird because it's very, very erotic. But <laughs> it's just one of these things that I had to write down, and that's what every book is. It's something you have to write. I, I, I have to tell you <laughs> that, you know, there, there's a lot of money out there for that category. Um, you know, there's obviously some voracious readers, and, um, you know, I've, I've spoken about this before with, with a, a couple of other best-selling authors, and and you know we we talk about the, the whole Fifty Shades phenomenon, and you know is mm-hmm. it good or is it bad? I mean, there's all sorts of judgments you can place on it, but the reality is, um, E. L. James is has done quite well for herself with that you know with that series. Um, I myself took a stab at writing in that genre, and it, it, and I I needed to explore it, but. But I was very hesitant to put it under my name because it is so different from, from things yeah. that I have done. What, what did you do? What did I do? Well, I, I yeah. wrote it under a completely different name. <laughs> you know, I wrote it. I, I came up with this, um, this, this other author, uh, the female name, because I, I do think uh-huh. that there is, um, you know, a little bit more acceptance. Uh, look, f- women are the, the, the primary um, target. I mean, for most books, probably, but certainly in that category. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that they're much more accepting of it coming from somebody who they believe is, um, you know, a, a fellow uh, female. Um, right. So I wrote it. I put it under a different name. And, you know, it's uh, to be determined how successful it will be. To be determined. But, um, <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what I'm going through now is do I put this under my name? Um, and and, and there's, a, there's a freedom I think to publishing something under a pseudonym yeah. that nobody knows who you are, um, and you feel like you can do more outrageous things if it's not necessarily connected to your name. So it's you know it's one thing I may do. I don't know. Yeah, and it, you know it's a, you know you you um, you have had a, a very successful career. I mean, over thirty million. The last, last statistics I looked at, anyway. And this could be a, a conservative number, but thirty million books sold. So the 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 hesitation to rock the boat, so to speak, and take that risk is got to be, I mean, certainly much bigger on you than, than it is on me. I mean, this is, uh, it's an apples to oranges comparison, but, um, but you know, of course the flip side, I mean, coming from my marketing and branding head, it's, you know, you have to establish a brand new brand, which is, you know, a very time consuming process as well. I know. And that's that's a discussion that my agent and I are are, are going to be having along with my publisher. Um, uh, do you do you cast off the name that you have been so hard under and got an uh, an audience under uh, to start off anew? That that doesn't make economic sense either, does it? So, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of things to, to to juggle here. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. Well, uh, Tess Gerritsen, best of luck with you for for you or to you rather. Um, too. with, uh, with Island Zero and the new book. Now, does, uh, I guess we shouldn't say if the new book has a name because we don't know what, uh, what author is going to be written under. That's right. I, I have a title, but I'm supposed to keep it under wraps. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep, we'll not, we're not going to, 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 uh, to spill the beans, uh, here anyway. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, Tess, thank you so much for joining me today. And of course, best of luck. And I hope you have a great day in, uh, in Maine. Thank you very much, and you have a nice day, too. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tess. As a reminder, her new film, Island Zero, will be available through video on demand starting May 15th, but you don't have to wait till then. You can pre-order it now from iTunes. 
And if you want to know more about me, author Mike Carlin, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And if you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend about this interview. We'd love it when you share the good news with others. So for Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening and until next time. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.